Be blessed. Thank, thank you, James, and thank you for your prayer. Uh, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll read our section in just a moment. We're actually going to deal with the paragraphs that begin in verse 13 through to the end of the chapter. But let me just begin just with a kind of a, a preamble here. Um, I'm teaching a graduate course uh, this semester where with my students, we're looking at different practices a local church does. And the purpose is then, how do you think about those practices theologically? Uh, I realize it, does, it doesn't sound like a, like a fancy course, but anyway, we're having a lot of fun. Um, and what I'm trying to do at the beginning of this course is to show the students how that is actually an essential part about how uh, the scriptures function, particularly in the New Testament. So um, on Wednesday of this week, I took uh, Paul's letter to Philemon and the preamble of it in the end of Colossians chapter four. And the framework I use with them is that I try to show them how in the Bible, God always begins with an affirmation. Um, it's followed always by a negation, but it always ends with a negation of the negation. Um, and so to make it really interesting for my students, rather than just reading the passage um, on Zoom, we actually did um, a theater piece. Now, I'm not going to be so brave as to try and do that again this morning with our text. But if you think about Jesus, the affirmation in God was the incarnation. The negation was the crucifixion. But the resurrection was the negation on the negation. And in fact, the whole Bible is written that way. Creation is God's affirmation into history. But there's the terrible irony of the fall. That's the ultimate negation. But then redemption and reconciliation is how God negated the negation. The Gospel of Mark is a marvelous illustration of this. Um, as we've already seen in Mark chapter 1, in the first three verses, God, through Mark's pen, makes an affirmation. Now, we're in a really long section where Jesus is in Galilee, and then even beyond Galilee through chapter 10, where there's lots of negative and negations going on. But the negation on the negation is when Peter affirms in chapter 8 that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And the whole gospel rises to that affirmation of Peter in chapter 8. Now, this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at three little paragraphs um, where there is conflict. What I'm actually going to call a negation. But God's final word is always a word of grace. So now where are we in the gospel? So we've looked at chapter one and particularly the first 11 verses, well, particularly the first three and then through to verse 11, which is a marvelous introduction. And it's a ma marvelous affirmation about God, what God was going to do in Jesus. Now, we are really into the conflict today. So We've already read about the temptation. There's already conflicts with the spirit world. There's sickness. There's the healing of the paralytic. And now today, there's conflicts, negation with Pharisees and the scribes of the Pharisees, as Mark says. So two things are going to happen in our text and in our message this morning. These conflicts 
with religious types in this passage allows Jesus to lay the foundation for the gospel that Mark wants to explore. So let's look at those conflicts. But these paragraphs allow us to see so clearly how God in Jesus Christ overcomes the negative, how God in Jesus Christ overcomes conflicts, and how the final word is always a word of grace. Okay, before we, we plunge into all of this, let, let's read the passage. Um, Mark chapter 2, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 13, and we'll go through to the end of the chapter. Jesus went out again beside the sea. And the whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. And as he was walking along the sea, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Okay, here comes the affirmation. And he said, follow me. And typical of Mark, he got up and followed him. Okay, negation number one. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. For they were many who followed him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call the righteous, the just. I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. Okay, second negation, verse 18. Now, Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and, he, and the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast when the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they, are with the, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst, and the, uh, burst the skins, and the wine is lost. So there are so, and so are the skins. But the one who puts, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Okay, third negation. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful, what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Avatar was the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for humankind and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, when we read the text, there's two obvious reading questions we need to answer right away. Like, where are we? We've read back in chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, after John was put in prison, that Jesus went north into Galilee. And in verse 21, it says that he went to Capernaum. Uh, Mark doesn't comment on this, but, but in Matthew's gospel, Matthew actually points out that Capernaum was Jesus's city. He says it in chapter four and he says it in chapter nine. 
we get in chapter 2 and verse 1, Jesus is still in Capernaum. And now, as we saw in verse 13, he's beside the lake. So we're still in Galilee. We're still in the uh, area around Capernaum. Now, then we have to ask the question, you know, who's in this story? What's going on? Well, it's obvious right away that there are Pharisees. And interestingly, Mark says, the scribes of the Pharisees. These were that religious group of people that took the Torah, the Old Testament law, very, very, very seriously. They took the temple incredibly serious, although there was conflicts because it was Herod the Great who built it. So some Pharisees liked that, others didn't. They certainly took their ethnicity as Jews very seriously because probably better than 90% of Jews weren't living in Palestine at the time of Jesus. And obviously the land was very, very important to them. Now, let's be careful uh, that we don't define them too negatively, but let's always remember Pharisees fundamentally were zealous, and that's the key word, they were zealous for the Torah. And this text tells us that they interact with Jesus, including the scribes, which was one part of Pharisees. Now, for the first time in verse 15, we see the disciples are with Jesus. And for the first time in, in Mark's gospel, they're all together. We met the first selection of them um, in chapter one. But now for the first time, Mark actually identifies them as a group. And he identifies them with the choosing of Levi who unquestionably is Matthew from both the other Gospels. But we also see that amongst the who in this passage are this infamous group of tax collectors and sinners. So, so the where and the who helps us to get our heads around the text. Okay, now let's come, first of all, to the affirmation. And Jesus calls Levi the son of Alphaeus. He's identified as a tax collector, which means that he was an agent of the Edomite Herod. This was the same Herod that Pilate sent Jesus to in Luke chapter 23 for an interrogation. So, so this is a man who has a territory, which is Galilee, and Levi was his agent. Now, uh, don't laugh too hard when I say this to you, but Taxes were very critical in the Roman Empire. Taxes are very critical in the Western world and in Quebec. And if you're not convinced of that, do begin to do what I started to do yesterday. I started to fill out my taxes. And Levi, Matthew, was an agent as a tax collector. And the fact that he was in Capernaum was even more important because it was a tax collecting center for people who were traveling from Syria through Palestine on the way down to Egypt. And here comes the affirmation. Jesus simply says to Levi, follow me. It's really interesting that Mark uses this expression because it's really the expression that Matthew uses more than any of the other gospel writers. Uh, Matthew places a great emphasis that what does a disciple do? A disciple doesn't just learn. A disciple doesn't just study according to Matthew. A disciple follows Jesus. 
And I can well imagine Matthew recounting to Mark, here's what Jesus did. And then we get this marvelous addition, classic Mark. What does Matthew do immediately? He follows Jesus. And so the great affirmation in this text is that what do those who decide to say that Jesus is Lord, what do they do? They follow him. Now keep that in mind. When we come back to the so what at the end, we'll pick up on it. Okay, first negation. Okay, Matthew, he's a tax collector, which means he's probably got, well, I won't say he was independently wealthy. He was certainly wealthy enough to have a house and he probably benefited by taking off a, a top off of his taxes, he, he has a banquet. And who does he invite to the banquet? I want you to notice in this first negation, three times Mark says there are tax collectors and sinners at the banquet. The scribes of the Pharisees were definitely upset that Jesus was spending time with this group of people. But Jesus practices welcome. Now, this is not unique. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus gets accused of hanging out with bad people. Luke, on two occasions, talks about this, and he illustrates it a third time with how Jesus welcomed another tax collector, which was Zacchaeus, and went to his home. You see, Jesus says, my mission is not to come for the just. My mission is to come for sinners. And this group of people recognized that they were in that class of people. Now, one would be hard pushed to defend from the Old Testament that tax collectors and sinners were excluded from God's mission. The Old Testament is full of stories about how God welcomed the marginalized. But at this time period, the Pharisees placed such an emphasis in their zealous approach to Torah that they had purity laws etched into their mind. And it was unimaginable that somebody who taught the Torah would hang out with these group of people. And so Jesus is saying, the negation to the negation is who do you spend time with? Who do you hang out with? And Jesus said, I hang out with those that are marginalized, those that recognize their economic, their spiritual, their physical marginalization. Jesus negates their view on purity, which then leads to the second negation. Now, it gets a little bit more specific. Follow how this works. Now it's a question of fasting. And um, the Pharisees talk to the disciples and they said, how come John's disciples and our disciples fast? Now, remember here, in the Old Testament, there's only one time during the year when people had to fast, and that was at the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. But by time we get to the end of the Old Testament, particularly in what we call the post-exilic period and in Zechariah, we read that there were four fasts that were required during the year. Now, this is how people get zealous. By time we get to Jesus' time period, there were two fasts a week on the second day and on the fifth day. And so the Pharisees were offended 
that Jesus' disciples weren't practicing the fast as they understood it, not as the Torah taught. But they would have been hard-pressed because, because Isaiah was so important at this time period. Everybody would have known about Isaiah 58. What was the true fast? The true fast, according to Isaiah, was not abstaining from food, but giving food to the poor. Now, what's really interesting in this negation and in this accusation is that Jesus does something that probably bugged the Pharisees. He didn't answer their question. He doesn't enter into their debate. And all of us know, hey, in marriage, when we get into a conflict and one of the people makes an accusation, the worst thing you can do is to not answer the accusation, to change the subject. And so what does Jesus do here? He does exactly what he did with the paralytic. And he adds now three illustrations. And the point he wants to make is, you can't take older traditions and put them into new expressions of what God's doing. So he takes the wedding. But notice, the accent in the illustration about the wedding is not the wedding. It's about being with the bridegroom. He talks about putting new covers on old sweaters. He talks about putting fresh wine into crackly old wine vessels. And so Jesus is saying, don't try and push older traditions as they were trying to do into a new expression of what God's doing. And so if his response to the question about purity was, who do you hang out with? Now, although he affirms fasting, he doesn't get rid of fasting. He does say, how do you prepare for the future? There's a new expression of what God is doing that's at work here. And how do you prepare for it? Don't try and put the old into the new which now leads then to the third negation. Now, notice what is happening. Now the noose is getting tighter and tighter around Jesus' neck because now it comes down to the Sabbath. And in fact, in this third negation, as well as what we'll see next week in chapter three, Pharisees were quite upset about what Jesus and particularly his disciples were doing on the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was a boundary marker. Okay, the purity laws, that was their interpretation. The fasting was the things they added. But on this one, they were going to the very heart of how they understood the Torah. But what's really interesting, according to Mark, and here he's a little bit different from Mark and Luke. Mark actually puts the accent through two little expressions where he says they were going through the grain fields. They were making their way. And so it wasn't just the fact that the disciples were doing something on the Sabbath that got the Pharisees upset. When you read the Mishnah, which is kind of the commentary at Jesus' time on the Torah, there were 39 obligations that a Jew had to keep. And one of those obligations was to not walk more than one kilometer. And so if you looked at Capernaum, all of the grain fields were easily a kilometer outside of Capernaum. So 
The Pharisees were upset that not only were they not respecting the Sabbath, but they weren't even paying attention to the Mishnah, and they were going beyond the boundaries. If you want to understand Mishnah, next Saturday, with your mask on, keeping social distancing, go to Utremont and follow the threads that are connected so that people know how far they can walk from their homes to their synagogues. It's alive and well even to this day. And the Pharisees were upset. Now, again, Jesus does the same thing that he did with fasting. And this time, he cites a scriptural example. He cites 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, when David, with his companions, went into the holy place and ate the holy bread. What's really interesting is that Matthew and Luke make reference to this, but they don't get into the detail that Mark does. And Jesus, according to Mark, does his own negation on the negation. Because in Jewish literature, it was well known, the Sabbath is delivered to you, Israel, not to the Sabbath. And so Jesus, using a really funny illustration about Avatar and the holy bread, was actually changing the boundary marker. He was appropriating the Sabbath for himself. You see, the logic inciting Avatar was to say, I have personal authority as great as that of David. And that must have been shocking. Jesus was saying he has the same authority that David had. But then he goes even farther because he now calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He actually takes it upon himself and he does something incredibly radical. For the second time in his gospel, he calls himself the son of man. We know from Jewish literature at the time of Jesus that the book of Daniel was probably one of the most important books of the Old Testament that everybody read, particularly chapters 2, chapters 7, and chapters 9. And it's in chapter 7 we read about the appearance of the Son of Man. And now Jesus takes the Son of Man motif on himself. And so what does Jesus do with the third negation? He says, where are your boundary markers? I'm making my boundary markers around my very person. I am the son of man. I've come to do what Daniel 7 is all about. I'm here to take Sabbath on myself. You can only understand the Sabbath through me. So the first question Jesus raised was, who are you going to spend time with? What is true purity? And we know later on in this text, as well as in the rest of the New Testament, that, that purity is now defined in terms of the Holy Spirit living in God's people. The second question was, how do you prepare for the future? Yeah, you might fast, but how do you prepare for the new expression? And Jesus in Mark's gospel will say, I am the son of God through the resurrection. And now with this third question, what are your boundary markers? In the rest of the New Testament, we're going to learn the new boundary markers for the people of God are being a people of faith, going right back to Abraham, but animated, lived out through the power of the Spirit. So there was an affirmation, follow me. There were three negations, 
around purity laws, around fasting, and around Sabbath. And Jesus raises three really good questions. But the bottom line is, is that Jesus negates all of the negations. He negates all of the negative. He overcomes the conflict by taking it upon himself. Okay, what does this mean for you and me? I said at the very beginning that I think there's two things that we need to get in this passage. First thing I said is that Jesus is laying a foundation for the gospel that he wants to tell. And by challenging the religious types in this passage, he's drawing us closer to what Peter ultimately say. When Jesus asks the question, who do people say I'm saying? Peter says very clearly, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the King. And in these three conflicts, he's getting it very obvious. He's making it very obvious because of who I hang out with, because of how I understand the future, because the Sabbath is about me. It's not about a day of the week. Jesus is preparing us for Peter's magisterial affirmation. That's where Mark wants to take us. But, and here's the application. God in Christ, in these conflicts, overcomes the negative. God in Christ overcomes the conflict. God in Christ invites us to interpret life through the lens of grace. And that's why the affirmation in this text is so important. Grace and following Jesus go hand in hand. I couldn't think of a better text for what we're going through with this curfew and through this confinement because all of us are confronted with a lot of negative. And I'll be the first to admit, this is not an easy time. But my friends, in Jesus, not only do we receive God's grace, we become his ambassadors of his grace. At Christmas time, Sandy uh, got us to do a really fun thing. She had done this in saying her goodbye with her colleagues and all sorts of social service agencies in Hochelaga. Uh, she uh, prepared a card. She wrote a personal note to all 16 of them. Uh, she had a book. She made 16 visits, gave the card, gave the book, and said goodbye after her 14 years of working with many of these people. I said, that's a great idea. And so we took a book, we took a plate of cookies, and we visited 10 of our neighbors, did personal visits, and we gave them to them. So we thought, okay, Valentine's Day is coming. So yesterday, we went back to our 10 neighbors with some chocolate, and then we took 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we printed out the definition of love, and we went to all of our neighbors. What are we trying to do? We're trying to overcome the implicit conflict that exists because of all we're living through. And we want to be instruments of grace. And so my friends, don't let the conflict, don't let the negative get to you. By deciding to follow Jesus, we become instruments of grace. We become instruments of negating the negative because that's what God in Christ 
wants to do. Let's pray together. Lord, I address my prayers to you this morning. Deeply grateful for this passage and for how you sent your son to overcome all of these conflicts in this passage and how it helps us to build a bridge to how we want to be as your people. So I pray for my sisters and brothers on my screen this morning that you would use this passage to help each one of them to identify specific conflicts that they're facing and to be instruments of grace because of who you are in us. Because our great desire is that you get all of the credit and all of the glory. We pray this in the matchless name of your son, our risen Lord. Amen.